Well, welcome to Sojourn, second Advent Sunday of the year. Advent, once again, is this time where we celebrate the first coming of Jesus Christ. And, and Advent season is a season that's all full of hope, but it's also for, full of longing as well. Hope, and, and, and amazing hope, was given in the person of Jesus Christ who was born as a baby. But there's still this longing because now we're at this place where... Yes, Jesus has come, but not everything is right. He is gone and into the heavens and reigns until He will come again and finally and fully set all things right. So we're kind of in the, the between times, the times when we have some stuff fulfilled, but they're not completely done. Jesus isn't done with what He's going to do, and soon He will come and make all things right. Now, if you have a Bible and you turn to the book of Ruth, we find ourselves once again in, in a similar situation where at the end of chapter 2, Ruth and Naomi are, are provided for by the kindness of God, like we were provided a Christ through the work of God. But yet, there's still so much more. Like, is, is this everything? I mean, yeah, they were provided for, for a season, but, but what, what's out there? Ruth and Naomi had this glimmer of hope, but there's still so much more for them. Will they be provided for long term? How are they going to continue on having food to provide and support one another as they live in this world of Israel? And so we're finding in the, in the same kind of tension that, that we're in as well, where they have some hope, but it's only this kind of bright ray that, that, that might quickly fade if something else doesn't come along. Now you guys probably like a good uh, engagement story. There's, there's some excitement there, right? And if you've, if you've ever been engaged or gotten engaged, like there's, there's a lot that goes into this. All the planning, all the anticipation, all the anxiety and nerves. Like, is this person going to say yes if I ask them to marry me? Uh, can I get all the details right? And, and so most people like to hear like this good engagement story where the guy plans things out to a T. Everything is lined out. He's got things special and particular to that bride that he wants to marry. And everything going according to plan is what we want to hear. And what we'll say, yes, like that's that's perfect. So we love a good engagement story. Here we have, in a sense, what is going on right here in Ruth chapter 3. This, this engagement story between Boaz and Ruth. But everything doesn't exactly go the way we would plan it out or write it if we were to write a movie. Like there's, there's some plans, there's some technical things we want to make sure we line up here. We want to get these two together, but how is everything going to work out? And that's where we find ourselves in, in Ruth chapter 3. In Ruth chapter 2, the, the, the author, beautiful storyteller, leaves us with this cliffhanger. They were shown some, some hope, but were left with this big question at the end of chapter 2. How will Ruth and Naomi be provided for ongoing, not just for a season? How are they going to be provided for? Yes, they've seen some kindness, but what's to be told in their stories as it goes on? And so God, through, through the book of Ruth, continues to show us His character through this great story, revealing, once again, His, His good providence in all of these plans, and especially in the plans that we're getting ready to see in chapter 3. You see, what we haven't seen is God being like this, this one who's coming out and directly saying things through characters. Or characters saying directly, this is God at work here. But we see that the, the author is clearly pointing us to the providential hand of God that is both sovereign and good in this story. And so we see, we, we come to chapter 3, Ruth and Naomi, they're, they're together and they're planning. Now God has provided for them, if you remember at the end of last week, to be get this grain from this, this man named Boaz. You look in the end of chapter 2, verse 23, and so Ruth, she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. 
And so Ruth gleaned with them for a time, and we know that she stayed there for both the barley and the wheat harvest. The estimates are that that was kind of late April for the barley harvest, all the way to early June for the wheat harvest. So six to seven weeks have passed when we pick up the story in chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now Ruth is the one, as the mother-in-law, would have been responsible for making sure that Naomi, as the mother-in-law, would have been responsible for Ruth's provision. She has this responsibility to to provide for Ruth in some sense of the word here. And, And you can tell that, but Naomi, she seems a little bit different, right? What's her concern here? Her concern isn't herself. She doesn't say, we need to get something so that we can be provided for. She says of Ruth, I want you to have rest. I want it to be well with you. She's not seeking her own end. She's seeking the good of Ruth. Not a future for herself, but a future for her daughter-in-law, Ruth. It seems that her primary concern has shifted to not her own provision, but to Ruth's. That things would go well for Ruth. Now, I think that this may be like a sign that, that Naomi has kind of turned a corner. That she's seen and been melted by, warmed and drawn in by the goodness and kindness of God that was shown to them through Boaz. And that she even connected not only Boaz's kindness, but that was God working through Boaz. That God was bringing that kindness through this one man that you went to glean from. And it seems like maybe Naomi has turned a corner here. Maybe she's starting to see like God is, is good and I, I, I'm not thinking about myself anymore. I've, I've seen the goodness of God and now I want to cons- be concerned with outside of myself. Be concerned with with Ruth. And so in order to fulfill this responsibility to provide for Ruth to get her uh, some sort of future sustenance and living that it may go well with her, she has to hatch some sort of a plan. And she does this in verse 2. If you look in verse 2, she says, Is not Boaz our, our relative whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Naomi is, is hatching this plan. And she's done some reconnaissance, right? She's gone on a few recon missions to figure out, like, Boaz. I know where he's going to be. I've been checking out and maybe she's been tailing him for a while. Like, he's going to be the barley, you know, he's, he's harvesting barley night. He's going to be the threshing floor. So here's what we're going to do. She instructs Ruth. Why don't you go and wash? Which to me seems like this is a great first step. Like practical first steps for Naomi to give her. Like take a bath. If, if you want to make this plan go well, like first step is like you need to take a bath. This would be a great idea. Get dressed. Like put some clothes on. Now it, it could be that, that Ruth at this point is still wearing these clothes of, of mourning. For her husband Malon who died if you remember in chapter 1. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David, after he had this affair with Bathsheba, and after they have this child together, the child grows very sick and is, is at the point of death. And, and David, he, he puts on these clothes of mourning, and he, and he prays and he fasts before the Lord for this child. And when the child, when they, when they tell him that the child has died, what does he do? He, he does kind of the same thing that, that Naomi is instructing Ruth to do. He, he arose, in 2 Samuel 12, he arose... He washed and he anointed himself and changed his clothes. So he took off morning clothes and he put on other clothes, washing himself. Similar to what Naomi is instructing Ruth here. In Genesis chapter 38, which is a very interesting story that we'll actually come back to a couple times, we see the story of, of Tamar. Tamar married a son of Judah and actually ended up marrying two sons of Judah. So she marries the first son of, of Judah and God kills him because he's evil. 
And then she marries the second son of Judah, and God kills him because he's evil. And so Tamar is, is in mourning. She's wearing these widow's garments, but she gets up and she gets dressed to go out and meet Judah as he goes to shear the sheep. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. But, but there's this, there's this, this, this uh, other experiences where you see these mourning clothes that are put on by, by widows, by people who have lost someone, and, and being taken off to kind of make a next step in, in where they're going in their life. You see that with Tamar. And so it's possible that what Ruth is doing is she's had these mourning clothes on this whole time, and that Naomi's saying, no, let's, let's take those aside. I don't know that Naomi's necessarily like saying, put your best dress on, like Cinderella, let's get you ready for the ball. I'm not sure that's exactly what she's saying. But she is like, get a little cleaned up, get a little fancy. She's trying to make Ruth a little bit of alluring. I don't know what Ruth looked like this time, but she's been cleaning, like field work, hard work. So take a bath, put on some different clothes, be a little bit alluring. But the, the point of it is that she would show that she's available. She's showing to, to everybody, Boaz specifically, that Ruth is a, available. And Naomi is initiating this process. Like She's kind of pushing, like, we want you guys to get together. I'm going to initiate this process so this will work. So here's the plan. She wants rest for Ruth, and so she's initiating the engagement process. But what is she asking Ruth to do here? She's asking Ruth to, to go, as she said, wash and go to the threshing floor. Go to the threshing floor. Now the threshing floor would have been, if you, we talked about gleaning last week, you cut the stalks down, you pile them in bundles, they would have taken those bundles up to the threshing floor. It would have been a big enough space that was cleared off, that was away from the city, then they would come and they would trample on the grain to separate the grain from the rest of it. And then they would toss up the, in the air, get the chaff to blow away, and the grain would fall back down. Likely they would use animals with rocks on, you know, behind them, you know, you know, Pummel the stuff so all the grain would come out. But they would go out there to, to harvest the grain, to get the grain to be separated. Now, they, they, most of the time they did this at night. And it's supposed that the, the breezes at night were you know, perfect for, for throwing up the chaff and it blowing away, but not blowing everything else away. They were gentle enough that it would be good if they did this in the evening or at night. But the threshing floor was this place that was known as a place of illicit sexual behavior. Men went out there. They went out there at night. So it's, there's the cover of darkness. There's this separation. It would have been outside of the city. It would have been this place, and it has the connotations of, of a place where men could go where their, their wives wouldn't know what was going on. They would be kind of separated from that. It was away from the city. The guys would work late. They'd be maybe kind of high on this... Harvest that they just had. Maybe it was a great harvest and being feeling really good. But they were unseen. It was kind of this place that would be unknown. And, and prostitutes would, would offer their services in these types of contexts. And so once again, we're like, what is Naomi asking Ruth to do? This is the same context, essentially, where we see Judah and Tamar meet up. And if you read that story in Genesis 38, it, it's not a good story. Like Judah commits adultery, sexual immorality with his daughter-in-law in this story because but Tamar has taken off these mourning clothes, veils herself, and goes to essentially the same kind of place. Judah's going out to thresh or to, to shear the sheep, and she meets him on the way. So this was kind of something that was expected. That would have been the same kind of context that, that Judah and Tamar had. And here, here, Naomi seems to be throwing Ruth into this. So Ruth is to wait until he's finished eating and drinking and then to uncover his feet and lie down. So think about this. A threshing floor. This is kind of a scary place and since to send a woman out there with these men. And she's to wait until he's alone. Essentially, Get him by himself and then we're going to start talking about the plan. Get him by himself. 
what, what are you asking Ruth to do? Now, there, there would have been others there, so Naomi wants to be clear, like, make sure you find the right one, because that will go poorly for you if you do not. Get in by himself, and then we'll continue through the plan. So what's she to do? Uncover his feet. Uncover. Uncover clearly can have these overtly sexual meanings to it. When you're talking about uncovering something, she says, lie down at his feet. Lie down can have very sexual connotations. It could actually mean to have sexual relations with someone. And to uncover his feet could mean to uncover other parts of a person that aren't his feet, if you get what I'm saying. Like there's there's some clearly like there's some sexual overtones to all that she's asking of Ruth here to do with the man Boaz at this threshing floor. And at the very least, what she's saying is that this is a proposal that you're to put out before Boaz. You are proposing marriage to him with this very thing. So no matter how we take this, you can see that this this is a bold plan. This is a bold move by Ruth and Naomi here. And it would have been very risky. It is accepting a lot, a lot of risk for Ruth. So what is she asking? What is she really asking Ruth to do? Is she willing to compromise anything, even Ruth herself? Compromise all that you are just so that you can be provided for? Just so that you can get a husband? I don't think necessarily that's what's going on. I think that once once again, we can see Naomi through this light of she's been melted. She's been drawn by the kindness and goodness of God. And so what she could be doing is acting in faith. So think about this for a second. She's she's received kindness from God. So she's kind of been turned. Her heart has been turned from God did this to me and I'm bitter against Him to, wait a second, God is the one who takes care of the living and the dead. And He has been overly, abundantly kind to us. And so you can start to see, maybe her confidence in the hidden hand of God is, is growing. She knows that this God who is sovereign over all, who has brought these things, that His hand, it's kind. We've seen it. I've seen it. Now now my confidence in it is building and growing. But she definitely has confidence in Boaz's character. Look what she says at the end. He'll tell you what to do. Then He will tell you what to do. She's counting on, she's depending upon Boaz being a man of character. She's placing confidence in him because he's the one who's going to lead this thing out. He will tell you what to do. And so what she could be doing is trusting God. Trusting the God who governs all things. Trusting the God who governs Boaz, who he follows faithfully. She's trusting that they will act rightly. She's trusting that God will put this thing together. That He will orchestrate behind the scenes as He's done in her life over and over again as she looks back and starts to see. Maybe her confidence in God is growing. Whatever is going on, Ruth agrees to plan in verse 5 says, All that you say, I'm going to do. And so we can see this as, as a plan that, that Naomi is working. Her, her confidence is growing. Now I've heard from one of our, our fathers here that he would take his daughters and he would put them on the stairs and he'd tell them to jump off the stairs into his arms. And then when they did it on the first step, he'd, he'd move them up higher. So alright, go to the next step and the next step. He was building and encouraging them to trust him, but he was also building their confidence that he could catch them. Until eventually they went up a little bit too high. He was like, alright, you can't go that high, like I cannot catch you if you continue to jump at that rate. But what he was doing is he's encouraging, building this trust, growing these girls bolder and bolder in his good hands that would catch them when they came down. And it seems like that's what these two women are doing. They're learning. They, they were on this baby step and they've jumped. And, and, and God, He was kind. He, he caught them. He provided for them through Boaz. They just happened, wouldn't you know it, to come to Boaz's field. He provided for them. He worked mysteriously. He caught them when they were jumping off the ledge. And now it seems like they're growing in their boldness. 
Like, let's hatch this plan. Like, let's just go down to the threshing floor. Let's just uncover some feet. Let's just lie down right by them. Because they're growing in their confidence in this God who is good because He's worked out so much for them already. They've seen God at work. They've seen His kindness and they're starting to trust. They're, they're, it's producing this boldness and trust in them more and more. And as believers in God, we ought to be growing in our knowledge of God. Paul prays this in, in, in Colossians 1 verse 9. He says, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is what Paul prays for us and expects that we're increasing in the knowledge of God. And so as believers... As our knowledge of God increases, as it should be as we grow as believers, so should our faith. So should our trust in this God. If we get to know God, we know He is sovereign and powerful and great and majestic and He's trustworthy and He's kind. Then our trust and faith in Him ought to grow as well. When we see His character, we ought to be changed by it. So as we continue to see God do things behind the scenes, our faith ought to build. And I think that may be what's going on with Naomi here. She's seen God work things out and her boldness is growing. Her trust in God is growing. And unfortunately, so often we are like Israel. Israel, the, the nation that God did, did these mighty acts of wonder in Egypt to deliver them. Hey, blood, or water is turning to blood. Like, gnats are swarming. Frogs are swarming. I mean, cattle are dying. Huge hailstorms are falling from the sky. Darkness is covering the land. The firstborn of Egypt is taken out. All of Israel and the world is watching these things, knowing that this is at the hand of the one true living God. And yet they leave and they go to the Red Sea and what do they do? But they saw all these great acts from God and they get there and they're like, we're done. We're doomed. Like, what? Didn't you just pay attention to what God, He's done lots of things. I think He can handle the sea. I think He can do something about it. What did God do? Divided that thing. So that the Israelites walked on dry land and then he covered it over as the Egyptians walked through. Look, the mightiest army was taken under as they just walked through on dry land. But what do they do then? They get out to the wilderness. And they don't think, you know what? We doubted once and probably multiple times along the way. And God consistently showed his strength, his strong arm to us over and over and over again. So our trust is, is really is going high. We have this high level of faith in this one true living God. But what do they do? They go out to the wilderness and is their faith emboldened? Or are they going out in faith saying, we'll handle this wilderness. We'll take it on. No. They get out there and they think, there's no food out here. There's no water out here. We should go back to Egypt because that would be better for us. They, they can continue to not look at the acts and the greatness and the character of God and let it embolden their faith and their trust. They go to the promised land. And they see all its goodness. And they know God has promised that land to them. Yet they say, we can't go in there. These people are too big. They're too mighty. They're too great for us. They're too strong. And often, that's what happens to us. As we continue to look at the greatness and glory of God, we see it, and yet it doesn't transform our faith. It doesn't grow us. It doesn't embolden us to act in faith more and more. When we should be more like the, the kind of the characters that went against this, one name was, name was Caleb. Caleb was a faithful man. He saw what God has done. He'd heard of the deliverance, and he said, No, we, we can take that promise land. Let's do it right now, in fact. I know we can take them. God, God is with us, and no one can be against us, is what he's saying. He was this man who's bold in his faith. And as we increase in our knowledge of God, we ought to be increasing in our boldness in what we're acting upon. We ought to increase in our trust in this God. And so the question for us ought to be, are we growing in our knowledge of God? And then in turn, is that growing our faith in this God? And are we acting more boldly in faith because we know this God, we know His character, we know we can act because He is good and He is trustworthy. 
Naomi's plan is a bold plan. Maybe not the perfect plan, but it's a bold plan that she has done in response to her increasing trust in God, I think. The plan has been made. Ruth is all in. She's resolved to execute it. So she goes to the threshing floor. And before we even get to the scene of the threshing floor, let's remind ourselves that there was a famine in the land not very long ago. And that somehow grain came to the land again. And that there is a threshing floor. That there's a threshing floor with grain at it is a miracle and grace of God that they did not deserve. So there's a threshing floor to Ruth to go to and that Boaz has grain at it. So she heads off to the threshing floor in verse 6. She went down the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Once again, we, we have these sexual overtones and all that's going on. He, she's uncovering his feet. She's laying down. This is a risky move for her with lots of sexual connotations and, a, and definitely a proposal to Boaz. Now, here's all the problems here. Like We have all sorts of risks involved with this. Boaz, as he lays down from a hard, day, hard day's work, he could wake up and kind of his sleepiness and grogginess take advantage of the situation. Completely take advantage of, of, of Ruth and sleep with her in his weary state. I mean, we have to remember that this, isn't, this is the time of the judges. These kind of things are totally acceptable to most people. This would have been thought of as no big deal. There was immorality all over the place. Sexual immorality was not just... Not frowned upon. It was acceptable in Israel at the time. So this is something that definitely could have happened. He could have misinterpreted the situation as here's Ruth performing some of the acts of a prostitute. So he as a, as a man of character would say, get out of here Ruth, what are you doing here? Like, I don't, I'm a man of character, I don't do those kind of things. So he could get rid of her, shoo her away. Or by the, by the hand of God, he could understand the true meaning of, of Ruth's actions. And as a noble man, he could act favorably toward her. And so once again, the, the author, perfect at building tension and suspense, and he breaks in verse 8, says this, It is at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now apparently this didn't happen to Boaz all the time, because he's surprised by it, he's shocked by it. He didn't wake up often with women laying at his feet at the threshing floor. So he's surprised, what is, a woman's here, what is going on? Now this is a compromising situation, no matter how you look at it. This situation at the threshing floor with Boaz and Ruth is a compromising situation that is full of temptations. We do not know Boaz's past, but let's, let's just assume for a second that Boaz hasn't been married. He's fairly old. Like You can understand all the temptations he would have there. Here's a woman who's, who's putting herself before you as available, as one who's, who's saying, here I am. And so Boaz has all these temptations associated with this. Maybe he was married and then his wife has passed on and, and now it's been a long time. I mean, you can tell, like, there's some tension here. What's Boaz going to do with this, with all that's going on? Compromising situation and what happens? Verse 9, Boaz responds. It says, and he said, who are you? He didn't recognize her in the darkness. He doesn't know it's Ruth right away. Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. You're a redeemer. So he asked Ruth just a simple question. Ruth's response is very interesting. And you might notice that's off the plan that we hear from Naomi in the early verses. She 
is requesting marriage. This is what Naomi has is, is, is wanted in the plan. But she goes further than that. When she says, hide me under your wings, essentially, she's asking not only for marriage, but provision and protection. And not only redemption and provision and protection for her, but also for her entire family, which would be Naomi. She's asking for more than what Naomi had requested her to ask. Now, if you're, if you're looking through the book of Ruth, this recalls a very specific phrase that we saw in, in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 12 which is actually kind of a prayer and blessing from Boaz. He says this, The Lord repay you. Lord repay, repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz is saying here, and Ruth is asking of Boaz here, he's asking him, you need to be the answer to this prayer. You need to be the answer to this blessing that you gave in chapter 12. I've come to seek refuge under the wings of the Lord. You need to be the agent of that. That's what she's asking of Boaz here. Answer this prayer. Be the answer to this prayer. May the Lord answer this prayer through you. But it's more than that. She's not just asking for herself. She is asking for Naomi as well. She's going off of Naomi's instructions. She's asking for the family to be redeemed. For him to fulfill his his responsibility as this kinsman redeemer. So, she doesn't like other situations that we saw like Judah and Tamar. Or Lot's daughters. If you remember, Lot's daughters wanted offspring. It's what they do. They got their dad drunk and they lay with him. Lay with him. Right? They were manipulating the situation for their own means so that they could have offspring. Judah and Tamar. Tamar loses two husbands. No offspring. And she manipulates the situation, covers herself up, hides her real identity, and lays with Judah. They're manipulating the situation to get out their own end. But Ruth doesn't do that. She's not manipulating the situation whatsoever. She's not doing like other women have done before. She's looking out... Not just for her own good, but for the good of others. She's looking out for Naomi. She's not even putting her, her own interests first. She's, she wants Boaz to be the redeemer of this family. She's looking out for Naomi as well. And we live in a world that's not too different from this time of the judges, where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And that's totally acceptable. And actually, if you, if you go against that, then you're kind of the one that's unacceptable, that you're intolerant in some ways. We live in a world that thinks that happiness is found in putting yourself first. And in the midst of that time in Judges, in the midst of the time now, Ruth stands out when she seeks not her own good, but the good of others. And we too, if we live in that way, we will stand out. Jesus says that life is found not in putting yourself first, but in losing your life for His name's sake. And Ruth here is losing herself. She's putting Naomi above her. Do this for this family. Do this for Naomi. Our joy and our highest fulfillment and satisfaction, our highest point of happiness, isn't ever going to be found in putting ourselves first. We're never going to find satisfaction. We're never going to find fulfillment in always seeking our own agenda and our own goal. We were never made to. We weren't made to live like that. So if you're seeking yourself and your own goal is the number one desire, then I'm going to tell you, like, there's spoiler alert, you're not going to be fulfilled. You're not going to be satisfied because you were made in the image of God. You were made to know Him and to love Him and to glory in Him. This is what you were made for. So if you're, if you're living outside of that, you're never going to get what you seek. You're never going to get what you truly long for because you're only found, you only can find it in God. 
And so loving oneself supremely doesn't lead to happiness and satisfaction and joy and fulfillment and provision and protection. I love how Jonathan Edwards has summed this up. But he says, Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. We are not meant to be found in ourselves. Those are shadows. A husband for Ruth is a shadow if she doesn't find fulfillment and satisfaction in God. And here you see her laying aside her own agenda so that she can seek the good of others. She is loving her neighbors here. She is loving as God has told her to love. As she learns what it means to be under the wings and refuge of the one true living God of Israel. She has found, I think, the sun. Not the shadow. She is not drinking at the stream because she has the ocean. She's saying, I don't want just protection and provision for myself. I want it for the entire family. And Jonathan Edwards affirmed this, that the the best way to love yourself is to love God supremely. If you really want to love yourself well, you need to die to yourself and live fully to God. Love God supremely. That's the best thing that you can ever do for yourself. He's the ultimate good. And so what we have to do as believers is we have to abandon the instinct to pursue our own interests, our own desires, our own well-being. Put those aside and instead pursue God. And when we do that, that is where we find happiness. That's where we find this ocean. That's where we find the substance. That's where we find the sun and not just beams of light. So Ruth here, she selflessly considers others' interests over her own. She, she considers Naomi's. And so Ruth, Ruth, Ruth has made her request. And, and this would have been definitely seen as a proposal. And maybe even clearly seen as like, Ruth is saying, I am ready for consummation. This is the connotations here. And so once again, the temptation and the tension of this whole story is continuing to mount. It's being heightened. As we hear Boaz respond. Now, A lot of temptation in this situation. She has just put herself out there fully. I'm ready for marriage. Redeem this family. Let's consummate this thing. It's not necessarily what she's saying, but it's definitely on the table here. So here's what Boaz, here's how he responds in verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. God bless you is what comes out of his mouth. In the midst of this situation, he's got a woman lying at his feet who says, let's get married. I'm ready for this right now. This is the connotation here. He's at the threshing floor. This is a dark place, separated from the city. And he says this, may the Lord bless you. Like this is what comes to Boaz's mind. God bless you. What kind of man is Boaz that he'd do that? That God bless you would come out. In this situation, in this temptation, Boaz says, God bless you. Man, we need more Boazes, right? That will step up in the darkness when when temptations are high to say, God bless you. And let's see where Boaz goes with this. He's a man of God and he seeks her best. If you look in the end of verse 10, it says, God bless you, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. That you have not gone after other young men, whether poor or rich. See, Boaz is recognizing in this situation. He's, He's sleepy probably. Had a long day. There's a lot of temptation coming at him right now. He's things are flying, but he's a man of character. So he says, God, God bless you. And he recognizes what's going on in this situation. He recognizes kind of the true meaning of, of Ruth's appearance at the threshing floor. And that she is showing him a great kindness. How? He says, you could have gone after anybody. Now we don't know. Maybe Ruth was just really good looking and she really could have had anybody. You could have had the young men, he says. Maybe the young men that, that were poor or rich. Maybe you could have had the rich. You could have had anybody. You could have gone after these other people. But you've, gone, you've come here. 
You've proposed this to me. And he's recognizing God's kindness in this through Ruth. Now, the question would be is like, well, Boaz, like, she's kind of been vulnerable this whole time. Like, why didn't you pursue her? Where's, where's the godly pursuit of a woman here? Now, maybe Boaz is just kind of old. And he feels a little bit unworthy. Like, there's Ruth. She's good looking. No chance with her. I'll just forget her. Maybe. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe that's why he hasn't pursued. Maybe Boaz has just been busy. We've got a barley harvest. We've got a wheat harvest again. I can't think about this woman right now. Like, I'm going to be as kind as I can to her, but I've got other things to do. Like, I, I'm busy. I can't pursue this. Or maybe that's what's going on. Or maybe she's just been wearing these, these mourning clothes and he just says, like, she's off limits now. We're going to let her mourn, let her do her thing, and maybe when she's available, we'll, we'll pursue that. But right now, she's putting out the sign that she's unavailable, which is not the sign she's putting out in the threshing floor. So it's starting to switch. She says, you show me kindness. You could have gone after anyone. Now, we don't know why Boaz hasn't pursued her, but either way, he sees the kindness in this proposal, and he recognizes it, and he says this in verse 11, And now, my daughter, don't fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Ruth is in this very vulnerable spot. She has put herself out there completely. Boaz could probably get away with anything at this point. He could do anything here. This is a very compromising situation. And what does Boaz do in the midst of this? He gently affirms her. He calms her fears. He puts her at ease. He responds as a godly man. And he treats her respectfully and gently. Like all the women right now are saying, like, this is God. Chick flick movie written all over it, right? This weird happenstance. So they come together to the threshing floor. And here's Boaz, this man of character. He's gently affirming her, wooing her even more in how he, how he does this. And he, he affirms to her, I'm going to pursue you. And the reason why he does this is great. Listen to why Boaz says, I'll pursue this further. Because all know, all the people know that you're a worthy woman. Now, we have before us in the Scripture, they're faithfully translated, that the very words of God. They are inspired and errant from God Himself. But the ordering of these books is not inspired. Right? And there are many translations and manuscripts that have placed Ruth not here after Judges, which it makes sense that Judges, the time of the Judges, they place it after Proverbs 31, after the book of Proverbs. You might think about that for a second. The reason many have done that is because Proverbs 31 ends with this virtuous woman, this godly woman, and boom, here's an example with Ruth. Now that's not inspired either, and we don't know if that would have been the case, if God would have ordered it the way He wanted to, if that's where He would have put it. But you can see, like, people are recognizing there's this godly character of Ruth. She fulfills a lot of these things in who she is. She is a worthy woman. Just as Boaz is a worthy man, Ruth is a worthy woman. Now, this is a side note, not the point of the text, but if you're single, like, pursue someone like this. Pursue someone of character. Over riches, over looks, over any of those kind of things. Pursue someone who's of character, who loves God supremely, and who will follow Him and react as they should in faith. And it's interesting that Boaz does this as a worthy man. He reacts the way he does, and he says of her, I'll pursue you because you're a worthy woman. But also want us to notice this. She's not just a Moabite anymore. She's not just a widow. She's not just Naomi's daughter-in-law. The people know her as what? The people know her as this. Not as a widow, although that's part of it. Not as Naomi's daughter-in-law, although that's part of it too. Not as a Moabite, but that's surely part of it. They know her as this woman who is a worthy woman. They know her. The townspeople know her as a woman of character. This is who she is now. Her, her identity is being transformed as she's trusting in God. People are seeing that. 
Now in the time of the judges, Boaz and Ruth and their characters, worthy people, are standing out. In Hebrews 11, you have a couple people from this time period that are listed as these kind of heroes of the faith. One of them is, is Gideon. And Gideon delivered the people of God from, from some enemies that they had. You might remember the story of Gideon in the 300. But Gideon also had the people offer up gold to make a worship symbol. He made a golden ephod so that the people could worship this. Samson. Samson delivered the people from the Philistines in this time. Like He's a hero that listed in Hebrews 11. I'm not making it it's there. Hebrews 11. Samson. Yet Samson has no self-control. He has a huge problem with women. Like He gives himself to things he shouldn't be giving himself. He lacks wisdom. Yeah, sure, it's my hair. Just cut that off and I'll be powerless. Like... Not the wisest thing you've ever said, Samson. Like, he lacks wisdom. He's listed as a, as a hero of the faith. We have more than that. We have Jephthah, who, who was a man who led a band of outlaws on raids. Like, this is not like, let's put him in the heroes of the faith. Hall of Fame, Jephthah. You ran, you, you led some raids with your band of outlaws. That makes you a great man. He made ridiculous decisions, like the vow. They ended up killing his daughter. Like, these are the people listed in Hebrews 11. And in the midst of that time period, we have Ruth. And we have Boaz, worthy people, people who are in a compromising situation, people who in the midst of outstanding temptation remained people of character. They stand out as people of character. They remain faithful. They're upright in standing before the Lord and before others. And we need to take a a lesson out of the book of, of Ruth and Boaz because we live in this time that's not so different And in the midst of all of that's going on in our midst, we can be different. We can stand out. And in fact, we ought to. We ought to be people of character. We ought to be different from the prevailing winds of our culture and society because we trust in this God. Because we trust in this God who works all things out. Character is what reflects the heart. It's this thing that it's kind of the core of our being. It's on the inside, but it shows on our outside and in how we make decisions. In our age, God calls us to be people of character who reflect Christ's likeness in a time when Christ's likeness is not being reflected in most people. We are called to be salt where there's a need for preservation. We're called to be light. In the midst of darkness. Salt in the midst of the decay. Light in the midst of the darkness. We will stand out in our prevailing society. In a world where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. People of character stand out. Samson, Jephthah, Gideon, Ruth, Boaz. Even from those people that we would look to at that time. They stand out as people of character. Who don't just do what's right in their own eyes. But trust in the living God. They wouldn't compromise. They didn't go with the flow. They could have. It would have been easy for Boaz to take advantage of this situation, but he doesn't. He's a man of character. But why do we think that things are going well, right? Here's this proposal. It's a risky situation. Seems like Boaz has handled this very, very well. Upright man, man of character. Right when we think, alright, this is, this is how the love stories are to go, right? That things are going rightly, and even as Christians, are, they're handling themselves with purity. Like, let's move this thing towards marriage, right? Move this thing towards consummation. And right in the middle of that, the author throws a wrench into everything. Verse 11 says this, Now, my daughter, don't fear. I will do all that you ask, for my te- fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And verse 12, he says, And now it is true that I am a Redeemer. Yet, there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If He will redeem you, good. Let Him do it. But if He is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Just we thought, like, everything's going well. He says, I'll do this. I'll redeem you. But there's a problem. Like, there's someone closer. 
And He could redeem you. He could do this thing. Boaz is selflessly even giving it up, saying, if He will redeem you, if He's going to fulfill this for you and your family, let Him do it, because Boaz is a man of character. And he's putting Ruth before his own desires to marry her. He's saying, if, if this is what happens, this is what we want. We want Ruth, we want you to be taken care of. We want Naomi to be taken care of. But if He won't redeem you first, then I'll do it. I'll do it as sure as the Lord lives. And so, this wrench is thrown in. Like, what are we going to do about this other guy? The other guy that's in the midst of this story is throwing a, a huge wrench into this love story that we want to come together. But both Ruth and Boaz's character shows again in verse 14. He says to them, So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He's looking out for her. He's guarding her reputation. And he said, Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. And so she held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went to the city. So here we have this, this huge situation with amazingly strong sexual connotations. Where all sorts of sketchiness could have happened and has happened in the past and has happened in the future. All sorts of those things happen and nothing happens. Nothing happens. She lies down, they go to sleep, I'm assuming. Maybe they're awake because they're like, this is a weird plan, we've got to figure all this out. Boaz is scheming and planning, and Ruth's like, should I go to sleep? When do I need to wake up? I don't have an alarm clock. Like, we don't know what else going on in the middle of the night, but it seems like nothing happened. They just lay down in a very tempting, compromising place. In the world where the judges ruled, they remain true. They remain true to their character. And Boaz protects her, he guards her, sends her out early before anyone can recognize that a woman was there so that no one could recognize who she was. Because Boaz is looking out for her. He cares for her. Nothing happens. And so here we've seen this plan from Naomi. They hatched this plan. They carried it out. Boaz and Ruth, they showed themselves to be people of great character. So now what? Boaz has promised to do something about this. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redeem you if I can. But there's some tension that's been introduced. Some great tension. Someone else is closer. And so now the only thing for Ruth and Naomi to do is to wait. Look at verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to you, to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now once again, we see this through... How Naomi has been affected by the kindness of God. Here's, here's her response in the end. Don't worry. Like she has faith. She said, Don't worry. We're, we're just going to wait. We're going to wait. He's going to take care of this. She's trusting in the character of Boaz. She's trusting in the sovereignty and providence of her God. He will take care of this. There's no worry in her voice. There's no, he's been bitter against me. Call me Mara. There's none of that anymore. She's saying, let's just wait. He's going to take care of this. And so here's what we have in this story. This Redeemer, Boaz, has been set in motion. And then the chapter ends. The author leaves us once again with this cliffhanger. Like, what's going to happen? There's another Redeemer that's closer. We want Boaz to get together. We're caught up in their love story. We want them to be engaged and get married. But there's this cliffhanger force. And so what's going to happen? Will the Redeemer step in? Will Ruth and Boaz finally get together as we all want? And we want to put it on film and make it a chick flick. Will they get together? What about Naomi? Is she going to be provided for? How's this all going to end? And we're left to ponder all these events from chapter 3. For one more week, because we're not dealing with chapter 4 until next week. So we're left with the end events of chapter 3. The strange plan that works itself out with no resolution. But here's what we saw. We saw a plan by Naomi. Not a great one. right? And let's, just, let's just put it out there. Like This may not have been the wisest plan that Naomi's ever come up with. 
pretty, pretty compromising in all of its undertakings. But it seemed to be a plan in faith. And, and, and it's interesting that, that God uses those kind of things. Even when we hatch like incredibly dumb plans, God can still work and does work. I'm not saying hatch dumb plans. We want to make wise plans. But God can use those things. And it seems like Naomi is acting in her boldness. He's acting in faith in God and in, in making this plan. A plan that Naomi and Ruth both initiate for redemption of their family. So their initiation has set the Redeemer in motion. And now, it's all in the Redeemer's hands. What a picture we've seen here so far. The Redeemer is now pursuing redemption for needy, widowed, poor, foreign people. What's happening is that Prince Charming has been summoned to pursue Sleeping Beauty. Like Snow White is in the woods with a queen that wants to kill her and Prince Charming has been dispatched to go and save her out of the woods. Now that seems nice for Ruth that she has a redeemer that's willing to do that. That Snow White has Prince Charming that can come get her and the Sleeping Beauty can just take it easy while someone fights dragons for her behalf. But, but what about us? Like It's a great story. So what about us? The answer is that we too have a redeemer. The answer is that we have something better than a fairy tale. The answer is that we have something better than Boaz. Far better than Boaz and Prince Charming. You see, in in Christ, our story ends truly in a happily ever after. The prince gets the girl. Our Redeemer is one we don't have to initiate some half-hitched plan. We don't have to come up with something to initiate Him to do something for us. We don't have to say to Him, like, you better get going because we're needy in protection here and you better do something. We don't have to initiate this because it's already been set in motion. And humanity didn't set it in motion. God set it in motion before the ages. He said, I'm going to send my Son. We have this Redeemer who didn't have to have someone come and lie down to Him and say, you need to come down here. No, He said, I'm going after them because I love them. Pursuing them. He initiates He pursued, He purchased redemption for those who would trust in Him. He's the one who came out of His great love for us. This is the kind of Redeemer that we have in this story. I love what one pastor said, that God is a loving bridegroom who has done everything necessary to win the heart of His beloved bride. And people are His beloved bride. The ones He wants, He will do anything for. He will bleed and die for this bride. And God always gets His girl. All we do is is like Ruth and Naomi. We just bring our neediness for redemption. We lay down before our Redeemer just utter desperation. There is no one else that can accomplish this. Only you can do it. And God always gets His girl. Thankfully, we have redemption offered to us freely in Christ. Applied to all who put their trust in Him. And so today, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And at this table, we come bringing nothing. We add nothing to the table. We bring nothing to the table. All as we are are those who have been purchased by a Redeemer. One who has bought us back from our desperation and put us in a place of sonship. Put us in a place of the redeemed. And this juice and this bread 
We are resembling and symbolizing the body of Christ that was broken to redeem us. The blood of Christ that was poured out to purchase for us forgiveness of our sins. And we bring our neediness and desperation before Him. And we lay it down and say, you have paid it all. And by our trust in you, we are purchased. We are redeemed. We don't have to wait for the story to end because we know that you have promised redemption forevermore. We're, we're satisfied. We're fulfilled. Here we have the substance and not a being. We have the sun and not a shadow. We have Christ who has given us all that we need to finally and fully be redeemed. And so today, we encourage you, if you're a believer, if you've trusted in Christ and fully placed your faith on Him, then come and take. Remember what Christ has done for you. How His body was broken for you. How His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Be reminded that by your faith in Christ, you're united to Him, that you are redeemed. And that 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 identity of you, that uh, announcement over you can never change. If you're not in Christ, if you haven't trusted in Christ, then please don't take this meal. Instead, take Christ. He is, he is offered to you. He has pursued you and initiated with you and said, Please, come. I've purchased forgiveness for you if you just place your faith in me. And so if you're not a believer, stay in your seat and take Christ. If you don't know what that means, please ask us. We'd love to tell you about what it means to be a Christian. But if you've been redeemed, please come and take in faith. Let me pray for us and then we'll come and take. God, thank you. We read all these stories and we read Ruth and Boaz and it's, it's an awesome story. And we read fairy tales and we think, wow, what an amazing ending that the Prince Charming would come and save someone that's in desperation and need. And our story through Christ is so much better than those because it's real and it's true and it never changes. God, thank you for getting your girl. We are desperate before you. We have no other place to turn but you and we thank you for delivering us from our bondage of our sin, from the power and penalty of our sin, from all the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. You have delivered us out of it all. And God, we thank You that this wasn't our idea, that we didn't initiate, that we didn't have to come up with a plan, that You planned it long ago to redeem us. And thank You for being faithful to carry out Your plans. God, would You help us be people who see Your character and greatness and are emboldened by our trust in You, to live differently in an age that lives in the way that they think is right. God, may we live according to Your way, knowing that Your way is truly the way of eternal life. Father, thanks for the people. May we be encouraged by one another as we come and are reminded that we've trusted in Christ and that Christ has redeemed these people for eternal life. God, we thank You so much for all that You have given us and poured out to us in Christ. May He receive the glory as we take and eat the supper. May He receive the glory as we sing and pray in response. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We want this to be an unhurried time. If you need time to sit and pray and think and, and repent of sins or to trust in Christ or, or to continue to see the greatness and glory of God, like take time to do that. But when you're ready, come and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice and be reminded of your unity with Christ through your faith in Him.